0: You're listening to Trial by Media, a behind-the-scenes, true-crime podcast. We'll lift the lid on crime and how it's covered, bringing you the biggest cases from Britain's courts. You've read the coverage. Here's the full story.
1: In 2019, there were 33,000 cases waiting to be heard in a Crown court. Then the Ministry of Justice reduced the day's court sit by 15%, so in 2020 there were 37,000 cases waiting to be heard. The number now, inflamed by a pandemic, is 55,000. Witnesses will forget what happened. Victims won't be able to bear it, and they will withdraw their support. Innocent people will be kept in prison without a trial, and lots of guilty people will get off. In a magistrate's court, the number isn't 50,000. It's 500,000. But after COVID outbreaks in 76 out of 117 prisons, after 51 prisoners have died, after 600 court users and 69 judges have been struck down with COVID, after a letter before claim has been sent to Her Majesty's Courts and Tribunal Service accusing it of failing in its duty to preserve life, we ask, are they too dangerous to run or is it too dangerous to slow down? I'll be chatting first of all with criminal solicitor Julian Young, Then we'll bring in my fellow crime journalists and long-suffering contributors, Carolina Harantz-Kar, Sophia DeRue and Cameron Charters. But first, he's a president of the West London Law Society. He's lectured at Oxbridge and Harvard and he's represented defendants accused of all crimes in all courts. Welcome, Julian Young. First of all, why should people care that there is a backlog?
2: There was already a backlog before COVID, both in the magistrates' court and the Crown Court. But unfortunately, the reduction in the number of courts, the reduction in the number of sitting days for the judiciary, and problems with keeping everything clean and safe for everyone, has resulted in even greater backlog. And that has its knock-on effects with the public, generally, in their confidence in the criminal justice system.
1: Why does it matter that there's a backlog? For example, The Evening Standard ran a story uh, the other day of an 18-year-old who took her life, sadly, after being told she'd have to wait 19 months for a trial. What's the effect of a backlog on people who have to participate in a court? The effect
2: of the backlog is in fact very serious because, first of all, there's the principle that justice delayed is justice denied. Secondly people, and especially defendants who may be in custody for months, possibly unable to see their family or their lawyers because the COVID affects prisons as well as courts. And the fact that defendants, complainants, witnesses, everyone involved in the criminal justice system who are not practicing lawyers um, will feel that justice in a general term is not being delivered swiftly enough.
1: And in terms of knock-on effects of that, do you often find that sometimes witnesses and victims will withdraw their support from the prosecution and just say, I've I've had enough, let's just not do it anymore?
2: There's always a danger when there's a delay between making a statement or a complaint and a trial taking place, and people losing confidence and indeed sometimes forgetting exactly what happens, which is of course... One of the purposes of the trial to work out what happened when the prosecution can prove their case but long delays mean for example people forget they may move address and not get a notice of another hearing because they may not be under any obligation to tell the police where they're living
1: and that is not serving justice in the general sense the only person that i can think the court backlog might be good for is potentially somebody who is guilty but pleading not guilty in the hope that the witnesses will forget. Have you ever come across a defendant who's sort of quite pleased or will definitely benefit from there being a backlog? I have clients who
2: are happy that cases are put off to a later date on the basis that witnesses might not be traced, might not come to court, or might not give evidence as well as they should do. And of course, the backlog is going to make that delay between whatever occurred, a charge as and when it's put before the court, and a trial, especially in the Crown Court, that delay is going to, to be to the benefit of it if possible, probably to the benefit of a defendant. But let us not forget that there's another delay to be factored into all this, and that is the fact that police can release people under investigation, and it can then be six months or more, and I've got a case of about two and a half years old, where the police still haven't decided whether they're going to charge someone or not. And that is an incredible pressure on a suspect who is deemed to be not guilty and is awaiting a disposal of the allegation made against them.
1: Yeah, this is quite a new thing, isn't it? This came across because police had there was a time limit with police bail. Is that is that what it was?
2: The the police were supposed to charge somebody if they had sufficient evidence, and sort of get matters moving as swiftly as possible. What's happened is that the police now, under what's called release under investigation (RUI) as we call it, have got almost unlimited time within which to do anything. Then the case probably goes to the Crown Prosecution Service and eventually what's called a postal requisition, like a, like a summons is sent out. That is normally sent to the last known address of the defendant, who of course may have moved because they're under, under no obligation to help the police or indeed their own lawyers. Of any change of address or they may think that after a year or so, well the police aren't interested, I'm not going to sit around and wait indefinitely, I'm getting on with my life.
1: What kind of stress or pressure does that put on them personally?
2: Well, the release under investigation for some people, it's, perhaps it's just putting off the evil day to when they've got to face the allegation, but for those who believe themselves to be innocent, to sit uncharged, without a resolution, for, let us say, between one and two years, which means they can't maybe can't easily get a job, can't move on in life. It may be that the job application they've made gets held up somewhere within the system because they have to show they're of good character. That really is unfair on a defendant as well. What a victim or complainant or witness will think when they're told, well, it may be a couple of years so we can even decide whether there's a charge to be brought, it doesn't even bear thinking about. Mm.
1: And in terms of what we do to fix it you said you know increase sitting days is one idea obviously the nightingale courts is another one and david lammy has proposed reducing juries to seven but the cba seem broadly against it and the government are against it where do you stand on those ideas well i know where david lammy is coming from
2: i understand where he's coming from and certainly more court sitting, more judicial time being spent to clear the backlog is obviously important, and it really should be put in hand as soon as possible. The government's got a lot of money to spend on a lot of issues, and one of them should be to clear criminal justice backlog. I know there are no votes in giving lawyers money to represent people mm. or these what certain newspapers think are these terrible, guilty people, even if somebody hasn't been convicted. But that's important to the, the stability of society. As for David Lamy's issue about seven men, I vaguely remember, and I can't remember where I read this, that he actually said that research had shown that smaller juries tend to convict black and ethnic minority defendants. And I think, therefore, he may be Dipping a toe into something, they have an unintended consequence. The main answer is to get the courts geared towards dealing with more cases. And the government has closed over a number of years, uh, a huge number of courts, and this has now come to bite them on the backside, so to speak.
1: So you're saying, really, that it needs more funding. That's the that's the big that's the big answer. We need more courts open for longer, and it needs more money.
2: The whole system needs more money. It's not just the courts that need more money. And I'll give you, a, a, for instance, sound like a lawyer moaning about money, but it isn't. Solicitors and some members of the bar undertaking criminal defence work are paid at rates below those set in 1998. Just take that on board. MPs get a pay rise, virtually everybody else who's publicly funded get a pay rise. But we don't. If you speak to the Law Society, they will tell you about something called the Heat Map. The heat map is the distribution of duty solicitors across England and Wales, and the average age is rising because there are no new youngsters coming in. They're not coming in because they can't get paid enough to live on.
1: And do you think that it's partly the press's fault for making money into courts, not a vote winner?
2: I can blame part of the press, not the whole of the press of the press because the civil service and the MPs know full well there isn't a vote to be gained from giving what certain newspapers call fat cat lawyers more money uh, and to that extent when we're described as fat cat lawyers or when one particular case is described as the defendants got half a million pounds in legal aid of course the answer is they didn't get half a million pounds in legal aid the lawyers may have got it but that includes VAT disbursements and the trial may have lasted for eight months that all has to be paid for.
1: And so just m- moving on then slightly to COVID more. So a letter of claim was sent to Her Majesty's Courts and Tribunal Service accusing it of failing in its duty to preserve life. So the firstly, the letter is saying, you know, we're going to take you to court over this. Do you, do you agree that they are fa- the courts are failing in its duty to preserve life? I don't
2: think they're necessarily failing in their duty to preserve life they're doing their best but their best isn't very good they've now had since effectively last march to work out systems for a lockdown and i go into court say at westminster magistrates court as duty solicitor and i turn up and i see there's a list with 30 people listed for their cases to be heard at between 10 o'clock and one o'clock An average of six minutes per case and there may be a crowd of people sitting outside the court, some of them masked, some of them unmasked, some of them not wearing their masks correctly. I don't know how HMCTS is going to deal with that, but that's a nettle that's got to be grasped.
1: And because I saw you bring this up in court last week, and you asked a magistrate to apologise for keeping 20 people outside waiting, you know, you said they'd been there for six hours, they couldn't social distance, um, and it's impossible. And I was actually really surprised. And, you know, she agreed, she said she did apologise effusively. But then she added, look, we're just worried about the backlog. And isn't, isn't that the point here? You know, the problem of justice delayed, as you say, is too big to delay, even for a pandemic. I
2: think that's right. I think the magistrates are put under certain pressures by the Ministry of Justice. I think they're wrong pressures to push things along as fast as possible. And that can lead to miscarriages of justice and errors of judgment and people making, defendants especially, making decisions which in the cold right of day they might not make and the lawyer might be able to advise more fully if they had, he or she, had more
1: time. But So do you not think there's a contradiction in, in maybe criticising them for rushing it forward, but then also saying we need to deal with the backlog? There is a
2: tension between moving things along as swiftly as possible and putting pressure on defendants and their legal advisers to get matters moving. Now those are, the, those are the, the two pressures. It's not easy to give an answer to that. Mm. um, There there are other ways of clearing a backlog, one of which is uh, a bit controversial, but as you probably know, if somebody pleads guilty at the first opportunity, they get a one-third discount off their sentence, as both in the magistrates' court and the Crown Court. One way of clearing the, I think this is a belief I have, of putting part of the backlog in the Crown Court, is to offer more than 50%, bearing in mind that Crown Court cases tend, I use the word tend carefully, to be more serious offences. That might help clear
1: the backlog. And from this past year, do you, have you gained or lost confidence in the system based on how they've dealt with COVID?
2: I am disappointed at the lack of planning by those who are paid public servants who are paid to plan for tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. Everything appears to be knee-jerk. Nothing is tested. It it seems to me that nobody's planned and then have not learned from the lessons of the first lockdown and said, right, we've we've seen what happened in the first lockdown. Let's get some plans organised. What can we do to get the system better? And for some reason, nobody appears to have sat down and done that.
1: So when I was talking to Julian Young, which you've all heard, he described there was a tension between reducing the backlog and keeping the courts completely safe. For example, there have been calls throughout the last year to temporarily shut the courts to keep everyone safe. So if it is one or the other, what's more important, reducing the backlog or keeping everyone safe? Sophia?
3: I don't necessarily think it's an either or situation, but also I don't see how the uh, two to three week fire break would essentially make a real difference in terms of infection rates and keeping the courts safe unless you could do some real structural changes to how the courts are laid out and ventilated, which you can't really do in a couple of weeks. So as it is, we should probably crack on and keep on with the backlog.
1: Cameron?
4: I think it's important that we keep the courts open. The longer that the Courts are, reducing, are working at a reduced rate. The worse it's going to get in terms of clearing this backlog, and I think people have a professional obligation to continue to go to work. Carolina, uh,
0: the healthcare system, like the criminal justice system, simply can't stop. You know, Julian described it as there's a tension, a conflict, because you can't give preference to one over the other. Both uh, the healthcare system and the criminal justice system are pivotal and essential to to society. You know, people will always get ill, uh, be hospitalised and need treatment. Likewise, people will always commit crime and be brought to justice. If you give preference in such a drastic way, close courts and send everyone home, you'll have the short-term benefits of reducing the uh, infections, but the long-term problem of exacerbating an already struggling justice system and increase the backlog. Hopefully such a drastic measure won't happen now that we've got the vaccine.
1: Right, so what is the solution?
4: I'd be reluctant to offer defendants uh, increased uh, credit for g- entering guilty pleas early, simply because they may come to the conclusion that it's, it's, it's it makes more sense to plead guilty early and get it over with, when in fact they may have a defence. One option is, of course, to open more courts. When Blackfriars shut down, there should have been more opposition to this. I think it's got to be a combination of opening more courts and securing jurors who are uh, actually willing to sit through lengthy trials. There's a a slight hesitancy in terms of people feeling as though we may be forcing citizens to uh, attend jury trials, but I'm fairly sure there'll be lots of people who'd be quite willing to leave the house and to do something productive for a number of weeks. If we can try and get some sort of census about whether or not People who are actually uh, prepared to attend jury trials uh, before bringing them in, only to find out that they've got they've got serious health problems or they've got fears. I Think if we can shorten down the um, the administrative part of selecting a jury, we'd be working through the backlog a lot, a lot more quickly.
1: Carolina,
0: I think if you're offering a defendant more credit for a guilty plea, so more cuts to the sentence pretty attractive if you're the kind of defendant that has a lot of evidence against you. Um, But something I was going to mention was what about offering a defendant who might have initially pleaded guilty what's called a um, Newton hearing or a trial of issue. So it doesn't involve a jury, but what it means is the defendant pleads guilty, but does not accept the facts as put forward by the prosecution. So they plead guilty on the basis of a different version of facts. For example, I covered a case the other day of a bogus estate agent who fleeced tenants out of, I think it was over £160,000. Um, so she pleaded guilty, but on the basis that she was coerced into doing it by her ex-boyfriend. So a trial of issue took place. And these trials tend to be shorter. The estate agent one took two days as opposed to several weeks if it would have gone before a jury. So I think offering a Newton hearing to a defendant who's the right candidate um I think would weed out those defendants who simply plead not guilty, so they can go to trial before a jury in the hope of being uh, let off and, and not getting convicted.
3: Um, I'm going to be contrary. I hate the idea of judge-only trials. I mean, a I- hearing? No, not the Newton hearings that they are. I mean, no, we have judge-only trials in Greece, but it, it was the uh, David Lamy report said that jury trials are the only level of the justice system where there's not disparate outcomes depending on your ethnic background. And we all know that, say, magistrates tend to be generally middle-class, retired, basically white, basically people who have time to go and, you know, just volunteer as magistrates. So, um, also, if we're going for the idea that the defendant would plea, then that would have to be at the lower courts, which generally means they probably have like just a solicitor or somebody assigned from the court. And we know how magistrates courts are. They're not necessarily going to get the most detail or best legal advice, far more so than if they have a, a proper barrister. So uh, I think judge-only trial sounds like a solution, but it's just going to open a whole can of worms and exacerbate inequalities.
1: So what's your preferred solution to reducing the backlog, Sophia?
3: Well, it's tricky. For one thing, we should stress, as Julian said, uh, the backlog wasn't created by the pandemic. It was exasperated. It was created by cuts and selling off court buildings and all kinds of decisions that were taken. But I would say definitely try to buy back as many of the dedicated court buildings as possible and just, yes, build more courts and possibly build them in a way that would be COVID secure. Because let's face it, all the experts are saying the next pandemic is not going to be in 100 years, like this one, with the 1919 one, it's going to be within the next 20 years. So we should actually proactively think about those issues arising in the future. So I think absolutely just massively invest in the justice system.
1: Right. And what do you think about reducing juries to seven, like David Lammy said? Uh, Cameron?
4: I'd be against reducing it to seven. You want as many different points of view and experiences from life as possible on a jury and if you can if you condense that down to seven obviously you you reduce the experience and uh, which which can be drawn upon
0: the the only thing i'd say to that to counter that is there's been concerns raised about the 12 jurors sitting in socially distanced courts not actually being able to see a counsel or witnesses sometimes, you know, if they're dotted around the well of the court in the box or sometimes sitting under the gaze of the defendant. Um, I think that's clearly problematic. But also if I was a defendant, I'd rather have seven jury members assess my case at full capacity as opposed to 12 jury members who can't really follow the case properly.
1: Sophia?
3: I mean, Carolina has a very good point about how it's technically, logistically difficult for all jurors to be uh, to follow the evidence as well as they could. But if you were facing a very serious charge and you got convicted by by six out of seven jurors, or if you're a victim and you're, the defendant got cleared, I think it would be a different story. I think in cases where juries don't reach a verdict and there's just two voices dissenting... I think it's important this recipe has worked as it was for centuries. And I think I would be very reluctant to change it.
1: Right. Moving the conversation on slightly, when I was talking to Julian, one of the things he was saying is that sometimes issues are framed badly by the press in terms of his example was legal aid. So he was saying that, People don't understand legal aid. They think that lawyers and all these criminals are getting hundreds of thousands for fees and that goes directly to them. And then people think that their taxes are being spent on you know, giving whatever luxurious lifestyle in prison to prisoners. Do you think the press is fairly reporting the justice system?
4: Um have a loyalty to their readers and need to maintain that because the press in this country is a financial proposition it's as, as much about informing as it is about entertaining and people desperately want to have their opinions reinforced uh, by something authoritative like a newspaper
0: yeah just building on cameron's point there's no surprise the tabloids opt for sensationalism over complex issues divisive questions will always get people riled up and more likely to pick up the paper you know i grew up in spain and the whole concept of a page three girl is just not something you'd see in a national paper so they'll pander to certain members of society because it's a business model that's worked for many years
3: well it's definitely definitely pandering as caroline said to the worst elements and uh there's zero compassion for anybody who's involved in the criminal justice system as a defendant and you kind of it's like when the newspapers were raging because um that famous convicted pedophile in prison i'm I'm blanking on his name got the COVID vaccine and it's like yes because he's in his 70s it's there's no i feel like a good chunk of the um of the readers of certain tabloids would love it if we just had the death penalty back in the uk so uh, that's entirely unsurprising that they don't care about the how the justice system works except to bleed about legal aid and activist judges and enemies of the people and so on.
1: So just bringing it all back now to the backlog where we started what do you think is the worst case scenario of where this is heading because as we were just talking now I was sort of thinking is this going to sort itself out not in like a kumbaya way quite the opposite if people you know as, as we've said if people know they'll be spending longer in prison awaiting trial than they would if they plead guilty they might just plead guilty even if they're innocent and then it also means that if, if trials are set for years in the future loads of them will crumble because trials are a memory game right i mean you know the less likely a witness can remember a two-minute event four july's ago the less chance of a conviction but the effect of both of these innocent people going to jail without a fight and guilty people getting off that both kind of lessen the backlog so that's sort of where I was thinking the worst case scenario is headed. But what do, what do you think of that and do you think what, what's your worst case scenario?
4: I think the worst scenario we'll find ourselves in is defendants on, on remand for years and that's not an exaggeration on charges which haven't been proven. Um, when looking at what we've discussed this afternoon, it's important to remember the role of the prosecution is to prove the allegation. Somebody who's guilty is under no legal obligation to admit their guilt. If they have been offered, for example, an increased credit for entering a plea. They may not take this even then because it's for the prosecution to prove the case, and that's what all defense lawyers will tell their clients. It's that even if you are guilty, you don't have to admit it because it's not for for you to hold your hands up. It's for the prosecution to prove it. So the consequence of this is is that they'll be getting a conflicted message. On the one hand, they might be told, well, you can get out early if you plead guilty, on the other hand, professional advice will be no comment and and probably to, and deny it because we'll represent you anyway. If a plea credit is offered to you at an increased level, you are in, in a sense interfering with what might be seen to be uh, a privileged conversation between a defence lawyer and his client. In in that it is very much for the prosecution to prove the case. And while these defendants are on remand, awaiting trial, the longer and longer that goes on, uh, the less and less. Flexibility there will be in the minds of defendants to cooperate with not only the, the the criminal justice system but even their own their own lawyers. Carolina,
0: worst case scenario I think would be a lack of learning from this whole pandemic. Um, we walk into court now and you still see the same problems that were there during the first lockdown. It just doesn't seem to have fixed itself yet. You take uh, conducting a hearing over video link, it's the setup is always slow there's always tech issues um problems with people linking in problems with setting it up in the right courtroom it has you know a case has to be moved to a different courtroom because it's on it's just if these problems don't get sorted um and you know if they don't invest in tech savvy staff then the courts are going to be faced with an increased backlog of defendants coming in frustrated defendants coming in and as um, just a justice system that just simply can't cope.
1: And that's it for this episode. You've heard from Sophia Deru, Carolina Haranska, who also produced this episode, and Cameron Charters. If you're feeling generous, leave us a rating, pop us a quick review. I've been your host, Charlie Jones. See you next time.